Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. This episode is brought to you by Luminos and Curiosity Stream. My name is Stephen Hackett, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Jason Snell. Oh, that's me. Hi. How are you? <laughs> I'm good, Jason. Doing all right? Yeah. Yeah. It's good to be back. Good to be back on our new schedule. We're, we're one day later, but in, in, your, in your ears, we're one day later, and in our hearts, we're several days earlier, so something like that. It's well, good to be back. The, the fabric of podcast space-time has been altered. <laughs> there was a singularity there, but we steered our way out of it. So we have a fun a fun episode today. Yeah, yeah, we've got we got some some news, and then we've got uh, we've got a, a fun a fun guest. We've got Lauren Grush from uh, from The Verge, their space writer, uh, to talk to us, which uh, should be a lot of fun. Yeah, so let's jump right into our pre-flight checklist. Yeah, up first yeah. we have the the last uh, shuttle external tank. Uh, it has uh, now been moved. And uh, there's a bunch of pictures in the show notes of yeah. it winding its way through L.A., very similar to when uh, the Space Shuttle Endeavor did the same thing just a couple of years ago. Right. The Endeavor is uh, wider, yes. <laughs> so it was a bigger problem. But still, they had to—they brought this—I think, what, it was from Texas, right? And they— um, and they barged it. Uh, they took it. There were photos along the way. It went through the Panama Canal, and then it came back up to California. And then they had to do this thing where you have to like get it at a place where you can then transport it through the city streets, essentially, because um, it's a super wide, long uh, object that isn't you know streets aren't made for. So they have to they have to plot out like a special route that will not. Uh, you know, knock over a building or something. Yeah, basically. So it is. Um, it is going to be uh, mated uh, to Endeavor at the California Science Center, and they're going to be showing the the shuttle, the fuel tank, and the two SRBs in a vertical arrangement, as if it were going to be lifting off, which is different than the shuttle that I've seen. Uh, I've seen Atlantis in Florida, where it is sort of at an angle. It's in a building. It looks like it's kind of flying. Right. Um, but this is going to be standing upright, like the the launch configuration. Yeah, I don't know how I feel about that. Um, only because these are it's a chance to get up close to these. I mean, I assume they'll build a structure or something around it, at least to a certain degree, so you can get close to it. But right. this is the sort of thing where you want to be able to get up close to a a real spaceship, something that actually flew in space, mm-hmm. and uh, putting it in a launch configuration. I feel like it it, it it's more it's going to be more impressive, but it's also going to be um a little more remote i guess because it's up upright and um so i i don't know what uh what their plans are to display it but um you know i'm a little skeptical of that just because i i, I feel like the the goal here is to get people as close to these objects as they can so we'll see they'll probably be they'll they'll probably like on one side of it there'll be a uh a, a, i don't know a spiral staircase yeah, or something, something that going lets up you, so yeah yeah no i agree i had the same thought because uh, at kennedy with atlantis you come in sort of like eye level with the nose of it and you can walk all the way like down one side of it and behind it and then you can go downstairs and be underneath it so you can see it from right really like you know two or three sides and it really changed my perception of the shuttle seeing one that close and so i i, I had the same thought you did and i agree with you that i think there should be and i'm sure there will be some sort of way to get up closer to it because just walking around the base of it like that's impressive, but it's you're not really experiencing it like you can if you can be 
closer to it. Right. And currently at the California Science Center, it's it's basically in landing configuration. <laughs> and so you can walk around it. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what they do. The um, the the difference I wanted to mention the difference between the the shuttle and the external tank is they're coming from different places because the shuttle came from LAX because they they mounted those shuttles to move them on a back of a seven forty seven and flew them around. In fact, that the Endeavor flew over my house and over my workplace at the time because uh, they did like a tour where they like flew it around the Bay Area and stuff before they took it to L.A. But then they they landed at LAX airport and had to take it through the streets there. And this came in by barge. Uh, and so then they had to take it from the water. And so they had to follow a different route with this crazy long orange brown tank thing. But uh, but uh, it will be the only place in the world, as they say, where you can see the whole shuttle stack uh, together. Uh, orbiter external tank and they also will have SRBs. So that's cool. Yeah, and this external tank is, is special. It's ET94 and it was used uh, in the the days and months after the Columbia accident. If you remember they um basically like practice foam strikes to see try to recreate what happened. And this was the external tank that was used for those investigations. And so um there's a lot of foam and like bits and pieces missing from this external fuel tank that I think they're going to be uh, repairing and, and putting back so it's it's like new. But right. uh, I like too that this external tank, like it wasn't just built and then put in a warehouse and just didn't happen not to be used. It was used in a very important time yeah. in NASA's history. That's good. And Louisiana is where it came from. Louisiana, so okay. Came from Louisiana, went through the, the Panama Canal, came back the other side, through the streets of Los Angeles, and now is at the California Science Center. So... That'll be pretty cool. I, I have not seen any of the uh, any of the decommissioned shuttles um, in their new in their new homes. So I'm looking forward to since I'm in LA a lot. I'm looking forward to going. My kids have seen the Endeavor actually, but I haven't. My my uh, my in laws took them, so I'm looking forward to seeing it, whether it's in launch configuration or not. I'm I'm uh, I'm looking forward to that. And of course, I have to make another pilgrimage back to Kennedy because that's mine. Atlantis, that one's mine. It belongs to me. It's my space shuttle. So um, I'm going to have to go and claim it. So on the on the space shuttle theme, we have news out of India this week where the uh, they, I think a couple days ago, had a a test launch of a, it's a scaled down, so it's not full size, but their reusable orbiter. Um and it, it's, I got to say, the pictures, we were talking about this uh, earlier, the pictures are really, really look unusual because it's a, it's a basically a scaled down shuttle sitting on top of a rocket. Yeah. <laughs> it's not a configuration uh, we're used to seeing, but the, the space plane prototype uh, tests from all reports was successful. So they, like SpaceX, like Blue Origin, like everyone else is work, are, are working on a reusable vehicle. Yeah, so it's basically they what they do because it's a lot safer on top uh, in a lot of ways yes. because you can you know get off of the rocket if there's a problem um, you can eject essentially which you can't do if you're on the side of it it's, it's and of course as we you mentioned foam strikes stuff is falling off that rocket so not being uh, below it is a good thing or or next to it um, so it's it's almost like the the little space plane kind of has a where you'd expect its engine to be in the back is connected and the sort of to the rocket and the tube continues down. So it's this, it reminded me of like model rockets and stuff where they have big fins at the bottom and then, and then, uh, 
you know, uh, the, the stick of the rocket goes up and then there's a, you put something, you know, you tape a, an army man at the top or whatever <laughs> and you fire it off. So that, that's what it reminded me of a little bit. Yeah. So they, like we said, this is a scaled down model of, and some of these photos, there are people in close proximity to it. You can tell this is not full sized, but it is a, a big step in the right direction. You know, it's, it's this iterative testing that gets you to having a, a real vehicle. Yeah, so there's action happening in India where they want to build a reusable vehicle of some sort. So this was, uh, that's cool. There's a lot of stuff going on. I mean, I think we should uh, talk to Lauren about that a little bit, about uh, all the different stuff she's covering, because she's got a lot, Space Beat, there's a lot there, because it's not just uh, NASA business and, and even U.S. business. There's a lot going on internationally. So A lot of stuff. Um, yeah. Including some stuff in China. When we talked about space stations a couple weeks ago, we mentioned uh, the China National Space Administration not being a part of the International Space Station, but they have relatively secretive things going on with their Tingyang stations. And they had a announcement uh, this week that the third version of that uh, is expected to be built uh, by 2022. Hmm. And there's some links to it. And it is, um, they're going through the same evolution that everyone else did, where you have just a single... Uh, mod module, you know, sometimes out of like what what the U.S. did out of an old rocket body, um, and then they have the Tingyang two, which is currently scheduled to be flown later this year. It's a little bit bigger. This third generation station is going to be a core module with some science modules attached to it. So they are evolving this, uh, assumedly rather rapidly, and uh, it is, you know, there it's it's sort of like um like looking at this, it's sort of a little bit like uncanny because they they are doing this off on their own, uh, but they are following the same path that everyone else has followed. And uh, so, you know, I'm glad they're doing it. Uh, This 2016 September, you know, September 2016 launch, uh, as long as that's successful, that's a big step forward for China. Uh, That one will be visited by at least one crew. And there's also, they're also going to use that second, mission to work on their robotics so they'll be flying uncrewed craft to it and capturing those craft and releasing them and, and that sort of mm. that sort of thing so um stuff going on in india and stuff going on in china this week yeah that's cool i like that they're they're talking about what their third one's going to be and they haven't launched their second one yet but they're making rapid progress to get this stuff done and as we've said on previous shows you can't um it's against the law right now for U.S. government officials to talk to Chinese space program officials. So essentially, it's really put up. It, it's difficult. It's a difficult situation in terms of trying to be um, get uh, international cooperation about some of this stuff because China is not essentially not being allowed by the U.S. to participate. Which is funny because in some ways I think we've got uh, as America, uh, United States has more uh, relationships in some ways with China than with Russia, and yet. Uh, we're, uh, you know, hitching rides, we're buying Russia, uh, Russian, uh, seats on Soyuz to get to, to the ISS where we are a partner with them. And then there's China, which basically we've said, nope, we're not going to even talk to you. And so they're building their own, they're building their own stuff. Did you see, there was a story, uh, related to this that came out, uh, today as we're recording this on Tuesday that, um, somebody, there was a story from TASS. I love that TASS is still around. It's fine. Yeah, Chernyenko, he is fine. He's just as a cult. <laughs> um, TASS uh, says that according to uh, Roscosmos, um, 
there are no plans for new contracts for uh, delivery of people to the space station, which means yeah, after 2018, um, NASA's contract with Roscosmos is up and they have no plans. And it's unclear to me whether this means we're not going to talk to you anymore or whether it really means uh, th that they know that we're that the U.S. isn't buying anymore. But either way, this is another one of those kind of mileposts where the Russian space agency is basically saying after 2018, we're not ferrying any Americans back up to the to the to the space station. I guess that puts a lot of pressure on commercial crew then to get off the ground. It, it does. It does. Although I think that's in the time frame. So, you know, that's uh, it, it'll be interesting to see what happens there. But that was a statement, whatever it means, from the uh, the deputy chief of Roscosmos. Hmm. So let's talk about Beam. Your, your, uh, I don't want to say your favorite space station module. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I know Beam. you're excited by it. Well, this is the, this is, this is the inflatable module. That's right. It's a very exciting. It's going to be inflated in a couple of days. Yeah. It's going to, and they're going to stream it. <laughs> so you can, awesome. You can watch it. So they're going to, it's going to be a beam stream. They're going to stream beam. <sighs> Couldn't, you couldn't you couldn't help yourself, could you? No, how could I not? They're gonna we're gonna stream it while it while it inflates. That's awesome. That's that's really great. I mean, yeah, but like we've talked about before, this idea of and I know Lauren Grush loves inflatable uh, modules in space too. So we'll have to ask her about that. But I'm I'm really uh, I'm excited about this as a possible way to get more you know more living space, more living space in in outer space by having. Uh, non-traditional things they're not tin cans like uh <laughs> like your traditional uh space station module and uh that could be really cool this one's small but it's a test and um the people who are doing it bigelow uh have as we mentioned i think maybe last time have already essentially announced that they're going to do a bigger one that's compatible with the space station <laughs> and they, it's like hint hint because uh it hasn't been like approved to be attached to the space station but they're very hopeful that this is going to be a way forward for um for bigger habitats in space and so they will get it inflated and crew will enter it for the first time around june 2nd and they're, they're not moving into it full time right it's going to be sealed off because this is this is a test this is to see how this technology works and they will enter it uh, several times over the course of two years to check measurements and see how it's holding up, and uh, so it's going to be. A it's got it's got uh, instruments in it to check on like uh, you know how does it handle radiation and debris and uh, temperature extremes because the sun will hit on it and then and then uh, through their orbits then the sun will the sun will go away and then the sun will come back and that that's the purpose of this thing is to find out how does it work in all these scenarios in space how you know what are the issues if any uh, and so they'll learn. It's great. It's it's exciting stuff. So keep an eye out for that stream. I think uh I think I'll have it up during my work day, see how it goes. Yeah, it starts at five thirty AM Eastern. Uh it's before my work day starts, I will admit. <laughs> oh, I might just stay up. <laughs> Pacific time problems. Yeah, seriously. So this week's episode of Liftoff is brought to you by Curiosity Stream, which is the world's first ad free nonfiction streaming service. It's founded by John Hendricks, who also founded the Discovery Communications Company. CuriosityStream has lots of great features. There are 1,400 titles, over 600 hours of content. It's available in 196 countries worldwide, and it's on any platform that you may be, including the web, Roku, Android, iOS, Chromecast, Amazon Fire, Apple TV. And th this content 
there's a wide variety science and technology history nature space of course um, lots of great stuff and what's really cool is they've just launched over 50 hours of 4k content actually puts curiosity stream with one of the largest 4k libraries online and it's not just documentaries. Curiosity Stream also features interviews and lectures like Stephen Hawking's Universe, uh, Next World, The Human Face of Big Data, and The Road to Singularity. Monthly and annual plans start at just $2.99 a month, which is less than a cup of coffee, or the cost of one title on competing on-demand platforms. If you go buy one of these things somewhere else, you're going to spend more than what a month of content would cost you on Curiosity Stream. So go check out curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and use the promo code RelayFM during sign-up to get unlimited access to the world's top documentaries and non-fiction series. And the best part is it's completely free for the first 60 days. That's two entire months of one of the largest 4K libraries around. Go to curiositystream.com slash RelayFM and don't forget that offer code RelayFM at sign-up. Thank you so much to CuriosityStream for supporting this show and all of Relay FM. So, uh, we got a little star follow-up. Yeah, is this follow-up from people, or is this follow-up from you? That's my question. We got asked by several okay. people to, to okay. uh, append this to our, our previous star coverage. Okay, well, so um, the way we talked about the life and death of the sun last time was very specifically because it's really complicated. There's a lot of stuff that goes on with different stars in the galaxy, in the universe. And um, I talked about our sun for a reason, because then I could describe what happens to a star with one solar mass. Uh, And then at the end, I couldn't resist talking about the, uh, I think I opened this Pandora's box by talking about supernovas and things like that. So a little bit of follow-up about black holes and neutron stars, I think, were the ones that came up. Um, uh, okay, so how do you make a neutron star? Uh, basically, so when we left it, I was talking about a white dwarf, which is this super compressed um, matter that's essentially going to be the thing that's at the heart of of after after our star, uh, you know, the sun blows away most of its envelope, the white dwarf will remain. And it's this kind of weird material because it's incredibly dense. However, I mean, it's it's but it's not it's not too weird because it's what what did I say? Oxygen and carbon, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's just hot and it cools off uh, but there's something called the the uh, Chandrasekhar limit which is um, basically a place where the um, the the matter in the white dwarf can't um, it can't remain at it collapses under its own weight it's like above a certain mass there's too much mass there for it to remain as a uh, carbon oxygen white dwarf mm-hmm. so it it collapses um, further than that. Um, this is generally the core that's left after a supernova blows uh, because those are higher mass stars. Um, this is called degenerate matter. There's really weird physics and chemistry that happens at this point. A neutron star uh, is literally just neutrons. Like, there are no electrons, there are no protons left. It's really just a big pile of neutrons. <laughs> and it's held in equilibrium by, uh, I think it's the weak nuclear force, and this thing called neutron degeneracy pressure, which essentially is, there's a force, the reason it doesn't collapse further is that below a certain point, the neutrons and the nuclear force are all kind of like providing a repelling force that kind of keeps it from collapsing even further. And so, so it's like another rung down, like white dwarfs are weird, 
neutron stars are even weirder and the matter is this kind of like unlike the degenerate matter it's like there's nothing left it's not even it's not um it's no longer elements anymore it's just neutrons just totally packed in together so strange it's it, it is really weird um and that's why i didn't talk about it because it's super weird <laughs> and i don't understand all the physics that happens in there and so i just I'm like yeah i don't even want to know about neutron stars and then so there's another question which is how do you make a black hole and there are lots of ways to make black holes and they're more every day people are talking about ways i, I read a a cool story today about how um somebody i mean, i don't even want to give it the credence of like some people think it's like somebody posited that one explanation for dark matter for the sort of missing mass in the in the universe is what are called primordial black holes which would have been black holes that formed uh basically just after the big bang as a as a uh, effect an effect of the big bang and um that's one kind of black hole. You got black holes at the center of galaxies. There's all sorts of different ways you can make black holes. But in terms of making a black hole from a star, um, if essentially again there's a there's a size above which uh, the the remnant of a star after a uh, supernova essentially is so large that even the neutron degeneracy and the nuclear force that make a neutron star not collapse further is not enough to hold it back. And it keeps collapsing to the point where, as far as we know, it becomes a singularity. It collapses all the way down to nothing. It's a point of mass in space-time, at which point things get incredibly weird. <laughs> and we don't entirely understand all the laws of physics that apply at that point. But in general, you get a black hole. You get you get a very large mass that is so compact that it is bending space-time. It creates what uh, we call the event horizon, which is the area beyond which you can't see anything that goes on because light. Or what, what is it? How's the, the classic line is something like, nothing, not even light, can escape <laughs> it. It's, you know, it's a black hole. So uh, basically it's about size. Like, you know, smaller stars have white dwarfs, bigger stars have neutron stars, and the biggest will uh, will generate black holes. Uh, it's not the only way black holes are generated, but it is one way that black holes can be generated. And there's, you know, black holes 30 years ago were kind of dismissed as not, uh, maybe 40 years, dismissed as kind of theoretical and probably not real. And now they're accepted to be real. But there's still a lot of dis discussion about what they are and how they're formed and where, you know, and, and, uh, details of the physics of the black of black holes so there's a lot of interesting stuff going on there so it's not as, quite as definitive as all that but you know this is a logical extension black holes are a logical extension of uh of uh our understandings of uh, space-time and uh yeah big big uh, stars are gonna be able to overcome the neutron degeneracy pressure and just collapse all the way down um i also wanted to mention uh something about supernova and i i threw in the oasis reference go listen to you can go listen to champagne supernova it is a song that's at least uh named for uh, an astronomical event um and it's that other ways i i just wanted to mention there are other ways that supernova supernovae happen beyond sort of what i briefly mentioned last time there are again this is one of those things where there are lots of ideas of various ways that supernova can happen and we're not all sure about all of them but um there are a lot of ways the ones that i thought were interesting is one is two two white dwarfs can merge so imagine you end up with two uh stars that are in a binary system and they are um 
uh, shedding their skin and they become white dwarfs. Uh, the idea there is that when they come together, their masses then exceed that Chandrasekhar limit, which means that there's a uh, sudden implosion slash explosion when it goes down to being a neutron star, and a lot of a lot of energy is released, and you get a supernova that way. Um, I also um, will put a link in. There's a fun example of. Uh, of how people feel like uh, type 1A, which is a, a weird kind of supernova, how, how they think that those um, are, uh, are, are created. And the idea there is that um, you've got a couple of stars. And this is the part of the complexity is there are lots of multi-star systems. We don't live in one, but there are a whole lot of them. They're probably, I think, more common than solar systems like ours mm -hmm. and the way that the way that these supernovae that we think happen are um you have two stars one of them swells up and becomes a red giant and all of that um it's got uh so it's got the puffy envelope around it where it's kind of expelling its gas and the other star has its gravity so it starts to um pull the pull the uh the the matter in and you end up at a point where um you uh you have so you've got the white dwarf and then you've got this other kind of puffy envelope star and then it starts to become a red giant so it starts to shed its large larger mass than usual now because it's picked up so much from its companion it starts shedding its envelope onto the white dwarf and the white dwarf accumulates more and more matter until yes it triggers this certain amount of mass which is called the Chandrasekhar limit and at that point it does its neutron star collapse thing and blows, uh, you know, blows away uh, the, uh, <laughs> there's a huge shock wave and it blows away the solar system and the companion star may get zapped or fly away, uh, you know, and, and run away and hide. But uh, these are all weird ways that you can get supernovae in the universe. Um, and there are more <laughs> out there too. But I wanted to bring those up as examples that it's not just, uh, so, you know, so there's a big star sitting by itself and then it blows up because there's a whole bunch of other examples. The supernova, we, when we first saw supernovae, it, it was just, there, the, novae and supernovae in general are just stars that get brighter <laughs> and we didn't know what was happening. And, uh, over time it's, you know, we've learned a lot more about them, but there's a lot of complexity. I, I recommend people look at the supernova, uh, Wikipedia page because it's, uh, it's complicated. It's super complicated. Supernova complicated so anyway that's why i only talked about the sun it's <laughs> because the uh, uh there are lots of different stars and they do crazy stuff and uh that's why i focused on our 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 star is going to do enough weird things in its life uh that i didn't want to get too yeah. deep down into the other weird things that are out there i mean an episode about black holes would be fun sometime maybe fun. we'll do that someday but not today yeah because it's not something we're gonna run into here in our solar system no well hopefully not but who knows all right, it's time for our interview segment, and we are joined by uh, the science reporter at The Verge, who I, I, I just love the stuff she writes. It's Lauren Grush. Hi. Hey, guys. What's going on? It's great to have you here. Um, I have been, uh, I said right before we, we started that uh, I was praising you to your boss not too long ago because uh, you're doing uh, some really great stuff at The Verge. So, well, thank so you. I'm, and, and please continue to send praise to my boss. That, all right. that only helps. Got it. I'll put it on my to-do list. <laughs> Just ch check that in, uh, in a week and send some more praise your way. Uh, so, I mean, people, a, a lot of people, especially who uh, have been reading The Verge's coverage uh, coming from maybe uh, more of a tech uh, background might not uh, know uh, about you beyond writing your articles for The Verge. So where did you, where did you get started? Where, what, what sort of places have you been writing uh, before The Verge? 
Yeah, before I was at The Verge, I was at PopSci, and that's kind of where I got more fine-tuned my space beat, if you will. And um, before that, I actually worked um, online for foxnews.com. And that is kind of where I got my feet into... uh, Well, first I started uh, freelancing for the science section, and then I started on the health page. Um, And as fascinating as health news is, I knew it wasn't quite for me. I was really looking more to get back to science in the space. So then I jumped ship to PopSci. Then I, I saw a job description for The Verge that um, I was reading it in my living room and it was something, the, the job description was just like, do you want to talk about NASA and space and, you know, maybe some other science related topics and, you know, entertainment if you're feeling it. And I turned to my boyfriend and I was like, Chris, I, I think, I think they're saying, Lauren, come work for The Verge. <laughs> like they, they just sent this to me out in the universe. <laughs> So yeah, I applied and I and I got it and I've I've loved every single minute of it. It's always nice when um the job finds you in that way. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't seeking it out. I it really just kind of popped up and I was like I'd be an idiot not to go for this. I think that path is um is interesting to to Jason and I because you know all three of us really are sort of working in this area of science and space news sort of within the envelope of of tech tech world a little bit um what do you think is driving like that growth and interest in this industry i think honestly it has a lot to do with the commercial space flight industry right now mm. um you know it's been so heavily dominated by nasa and for a while nasa didn't really uh know i think how to portray itself as a cool agency <laughs> you know they're very by the book and you know they are very thorough and detailed and that can kind of for people sometimes, but now with, you know, big players like SpaceX and, um, you know, other commercial industries like Blue Origin, they're promising all these really cool, flashy things, and they're doing it in a way that I think is um, a lot easier to uh, to understand and relate to for people. And I think since then, NASA has kind of followed suit, right? So NASA understands the importance of communicating to um, people that don't necessarily have a technical background. So I think we're we're seeing kind of a renaissance of um, of taking this dense material and kind of um, making it readily available for people who are who want to be interested, but they don't necessarily speak engineer. And and so hmm. I think that's kind of what's driving it right now. You mentioned commercial crew. Um... I was at the the last space shuttle launch, and I'm just holding that over. <laughs> um, and, and at the time, it was very much like a um, end of an era, and also what comes next was just hanging in the air. And we went. There's a SpaceX demo, and Boeing was there showing what the stuff that they were working on. But it was very much a uh, a mystery about where this was going on. So this is really an, an interesting time. Um, you you alluded to it where. Um, where things are changing and people's imaginations could be captured by what comes next because it's not the same playbook. We had 20 plus years of the space shuttle just kind of doing its thing. Um, So how how do you think commercial crew and the participation of SpaceX and other companies is going to change how people 
view space and it does it feel it weird at all to have like to to have private companies and to cover private companies rather than a government agency when you're talking about space you know i it was really weird for me for the for a while and you're right when when that last shuttle mission happened i was so depressed you know um my parents actually they worked for nasa for most of their careers and so i've kind of grown up with the space shuttle and it has a very special place in my heart um so yeah, when it when it retired, I just thought, what are we going to do? <laughs> you know, there's nothing going on. You know, we don't have any way to get to the space station other than the Russians. Um, you know, there's going to be nothing going on for the next few years. And I am so happy that I was wrong about that because, um, like you said, it has just been an explosion. And these companies are advancing so much faster than I gave them credit for. And I... I don't necessarily find it weird. You know, I did at first, but not anymore. I think what we're seeing is kind of the transformation of the space industry into um, a, a kind of a huge partnership between the private and public sector. I mean, we've already seen that with NASA and its and its commercial partners. And I think we're just going to see more of that moving forward because, you know, there are things that NASA can do that the commercial space industry can't, and there are things that the private sector can do, or the um, you know that companies can do that NASA can't. And so I think they've kind of tapped into that idea that oh, we can share the resources that each of us bring to the table and kind of you know fill in those gaps that the other one has. Is it harder to cover a, pri a private company like SpaceX or Blue Origin or something like that rather than NASA? I mean, or is it just different? It's just different. I mean, I have a I have very um, I, I don't want to say close relationships, but I talk frequently with the PR teams of many of these companies, so they know me well. Um, but and same with NASA. But with NASA, it's just a different protocol. You know, they're very they have a very controlled message and. Um, mm it can be a little difficult to dig in to that message to get some meat. Um, and it can be the same with the companies there, you know, it, it's just, I think there's less barriers between um, me and the companies, but at, at the same time, sometimes it is easier to hop on the phone with NASA. It, it really just depends on the story we're talking about. So I was, you know, in addition to that uh, shuttle launch, I, I did a, one of the NASA social events recently oh, yeah. at, uh, Moffett, at Moffett Field. And, you know, they, they that was, um, I remember meeting the people who put together the original NASA social program, and, and they felt really proud of the fact that they managed to do something innovative inside this giant government bureaucracy. But it is, you know, it is a giant government bureaucracy. And I, I wonder... Um, I, I, I'm not sure whether whether I saw you involved in this conversation, but I definitely saw a bunch of people on on uh, Twitter the other week talk who are who are writers about space get sort of labeled as uh, like space fans, and and as somebody who has written about Apple for 20 years, you do walk that line of being like, look, no, I'm writing about this. This is what I do for a living is write about this. That doesn't make me a fan. It means that I'm writing about this. But like, it strikes me that NASA covering NASA has got to be problematic because there there's so much that is dysfunctional about it. Uh, the commercial crew program has, uh, ha is something that we've been talking about a lot, but you've also got like the space launch system, which has been really criticized. And they've been, uh, there've been questions about the planetary exploration budget and the, the Congress and the administration don't want to agree on what to fund. Uh, so, you know, is, what about the, the problematic side of NASA? Is this, um, you know, is the, is this an, uh, 
unexpected aspect of of uh, of covering space this idea that that this this uh this huge agency is kind of got uh got some serious like controversies happening uh, i think sometimes space journalism can be misconstrued as simply being cheerleaders of everything you hear yeah right the fan yeah club. and i don't hold that view at all Mm-mm. and Obviously, it can be very difficult when you have criticism of NASA or a company because, you know, um, not only do the companies and the agency get upset with you, but your the readers can also be very critical if they think you are saying anything negative. Um, and I don't want to, I'm not trying to blast everyone out there, but I do no, think... We, I mean, we heard it when we talked about SpaceX doing some stuff yeah. from people who were like, stop talking about SpaceX. There are other companies like they felt like we were we were offending them because we weren't talking about their companies enough. Yeah. Just as fans of those companies, not as employees. Yeah, even. I feel like I, I've, I've I've felt that way with SpaceX a lot. Covering them is very tricky because they have a lot of loyal fans and then they have a lot of um, detractors as well. And so it's really just walking a fine line of hmm. of being too critical or or being too um i guess you know hyping them up too much and i i guess i'm not really concerned about walking that line i'm just saying that sometimes it can easily go one way or the other with how people perceive you writing about them and i really am just here to kind of report what i think is you know true what is happening and then if i see something that needs to have a critical take or, you know, be criticized, I'm not going to be afraid to do that. And I think not. there's not a lot of people out there right now that are willing to do that. What do you make of the, the back and forth that's, that's been going on between Congress and the administration about, the, especially planetary exploration, and is there going to be a lander on Europa and all of that? It seems like so bizarre to me that we, we've been in a situation where NASA is sort of getting funding shoved at it and then the the administrator says, no, 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 okay, we'll take it, but 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 no more. Uh, and it, it it seems really weird to me. What what do you make of that situation? And is there is there a way forward, short of just a new administration having different priorities? I honestly think it just highlights the the critical issues that come with NASA's you know bureaucracy, and that you know, and that's why I think people are flocking to these private companies is because NASA gets all this funding, right? But it is so bogged down in politics. And like you were saying, you know, some people give more money um, when NASA is saying that, oh, we don't want this money. And it's it's just a constant push and pull between the Republicans versus the Democrats. And, and, and I don't even think they're making the decisions based on what necessarily is good for our country or, you know, what would be the best course of action for a long-term mission goal. Like the journey to Mars is such a good example of that. I mean, there really, there's so many people that are critical of it. So many. And it's really, I don't think people are, or I don't think our, our lawmakers are really listening to that. They're, they're just kind of trying to be against it because you know the other side is for it kind of thing and and that's very frustrating to me because like it just puts us in this stalemate and then once a new administration comes in it can completely just you know turn everything around so yeah i went on a rant there but i think the <laughs> point the point is it does highlight the kind of essential flaw and issue that nasa is working with and so i think um 
that's why people are actually more optimistic for SpaceX to get to Mars first because they don't have to deal with all these politics. They can do whatever they want. I'm not saying that they will, but I think that's why people are are saying, oh, maybe it's a possibility now. Okay, let's take a break for a minute. I want to tell you about the other sponsor on Liftoff this week. It's Luminos. I've told you about them before. This is the all-in-one mobile astronomy app. It works on the iPhone, the iPad, and the Apple Watch, and it is from the very good people at Wobbleworks, who have been developing Luminos for more than 10 years. It brings the power of your traditional desktop astronomy programs, puts it right in your hands on your mobile device. And they've been doing six years of free feature updates from the first version all the way to the latest version, Luminos 9. Luminos has the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile it's up to 113 million stars, which is kind of mind-boggling, but you get to choose. You can choose which star catalog fits your needs. If you're in the city, you don't need to see so many stars. There may be certain kinds of objects that you don't you don't need to see right now. So if you've got uh, limited storage, you can do that. You can pick a smaller catalog and download that with one tap. And you can augment the uh, Luminous catalog with a bunch of free supplemental data um, including proper motion, which is a fun one about the, uh, the 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 direction and speed at which the stars are moving, because they actually do uh, they actually do move, and over a lifetime you can see very small movements from some of them. Um, Luminos Nine supports the latest uh, iOS features, including split screen multitasking and spotlight search, and they've got uh, they updated the Apple Watch app for WatchOS Two, so it's faster and more reliable. The people at Wobbleworks have been uh, working on software for a long time. They have combined 50 years of software experience, and uh, they built Luminos to make current astronomy fans delighted and to create new ones. It's a great app to use to get, especially kids, excited about astronomy. But sometimes even your older relatives may be like uh, blown away when you get, drop some astronomy facts on them when you're out at night looking up at the stars. There are detailed planet and moon maps, tens of thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars, support for wireless telescope control, and a whole lot more. So check it out. Luminos from Wobbleworks. You can find out all the details at wobbleworks.com. And thanks to Wobbleworks for sponsoring Liftoff once again. You know, sitting here listening to you talk, you know, we we rattle off all these different uh, parts of space coverage, right? And, And yes, the conversation gravitates towards SpaceX because they're doing a lot of like exciting, like headline worthy stuff right now. But um, there is a lot of other stuff going on. And I know Jason is a fan of, um, you know, the Cassini mission and he and I both like we are <laughs> as, as everyone is uh, enjoying the just constant news coming out of the, the new horizons team Talk about a PR campaign. Now that is brilliant, right? Just we'll just download yeah. new th- stuff every week for a year and put out press releases. It's amazing. I mean, way to way to work within the the technological bounds of uh, <laughs> what you have to work with. Yeah, they they plan their communication <laughs> yeah. system all around PR. No, actually, um, but but what's what's Lauren? What's exciting to you right now? Um, kind of outside of what we've spoken about with commercial crew. I feel like it's a bit of a stalemate. For NASA this year, we have the Juno mission coming up in July that is is going by Jupiter. Um, But in terms of what I'm really excited for this year, I'm really excited for um, Elon to reveal his Mars colonization strategy, which will happen, I think, in September in Mexico. And then the Falcon Heavy is going up in November, hopefully, knock on wood. 
And uh, also a lot of the testing that's going on with Blue Origin and uh, Virgin Galactic. Virgin Galactic just unveiled their new ship earlier this year. So, um, I mean, I feel like space tourism is, is closer than ever before. So I'm really excited to see, um, you know, how that works out. I mean, they have some very ambitious plans. Like, I think what Blue Origin is saying, they're going to take people up in 2018, paying customers up in 2018. That's that's just insane to me because mm-hmm. we knew very little about them just like a year ago. And now they're just, they've become a major player on the on the scene. Um, what else? What else? Uh, oh, um, Bigelow. I love Bigelow. I think they are so much fun. They want to send space hotels into orbit. Uh, I think also, or by 2020 was their vision. Um, so that seems like fun. I mean, imagine taking, you know, just a <laughs> rocket to a hotel for for vacation. I mean, I'm sure I'll never be able to afford it in my lifetime, but well, they've got the, uh, I can dream. the expandable module on the space station now and have talked about, they, they did that interesting press release that was basically, um, well, we're going to do a bigger module and we'd like to attach it to the space station, but either way, we're going to do it, which is really interesting. Right. Yeah. I mean, and, and like, I think it also goes to show, I talk big about these um, commercial companies, but it's important to note that some, a lot of them can't do what they're doing without the help of NASA. I mean, SpaceX gets a lot of its funding from that commercial cargo program and soon to be commercial, commercial crew, you know, Bigelow sent up its um, habitat thanks to NASA because NASA you know, funded it or, you know, pay, paid for it and put it um, on that Falcon 9. So I think NASA is still a critical player here, but it's helping these companies, you know, I hate to pun, but get off the ground. <laughs> <laughs> you got to carefully meter out those puns Yeah. Um, when you're writing space stories. I, I wanted to ask you, so, you know, we're... Um... We're Americans, and and you know this podcast goes out everywhere, and your stories go out to everywhere, and I, you know, we do get feedback. But there, you know, there are other space agencies too. Which I'm just, uh, what are you interested in terms of what I don't know what the Russians are doing, or the Chinese are doing, or or Europeans are doing, or or even you know we were talking about like the the Indian space program, and that the, 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 there's other interesting stuff happening around the world in terms of space stuff that isn't uh, uh, you know NASA or uh, or commercial companies in the U.S. So I think one thing that I think we should be paying attention to is that all of these other co- of countries, Russia, uh, the ESA, um, they all want to go to the moon. <laughs> China as well. They're all very focused mm. on going to the moon. And I just think that's very insane to me that, you know, they're all focused on this goal and NASA and the U.S. is just turning the other way. So I find them interesting from that standpoint because I want to see, you know, if that kind of changes our administration or the new administration's mind. I have, I'm very curious to know how things will play out depending on who becomes mm. president next year. Um, but yeah, those things are interesting to me. I mean, I don't know if you saw about um, the ESA's Moon Village. I mean, they're pushing that extra hard. Um, and that seems really cool to me. And that's, I think that is smart, you know, because... You know, the the moon may not be as sexy as Mars as a destination anymore, but I think it, it's a great stepping stone for future colonization of Mars. And it seems crazy to me that NASA is going to skip going back 
just because, you know, we've already been there before. So yeah, I, I like looking to um, the international players to, because I think we should take note of, you know, their intentions too. And, and that should kind of tell us something when everybody else wants to do one thing and we're like, nah. <laughs> it's kind of bizarre to realize we were, we were talking about this a few weeks ago that, that, that by law, the, the Chinese, uh, cannot participate in any of our space missions, which means that they're barred from the International Space mm-hmm. Station. Have you heard heard anything about about that? And if there's a if there's a, a framework for uh, that to change in the future, or is that just something that politically, again, you're talking about barring the U.S. from participating uh, in certain programs because they can't talk, literally can't talk to the Chinese about space? Um, I'm not really that up to date on it, but I do find that interesting like especially when it comes to the um relations with Russia right now you know um i just find ha- that not hilarious but interesting how it dictates how we work right so there's that whole um i'm sorry i'm deflecting from your china question to russia but i um, That's okay. uh there's that whole kind of snafu going on about you know congress doesn't want United Launch Alliance to use Russian engines in their premier rocket. And so that has just been, that has created a whole um, side industry. You know, there, there's, you've got Aerojet and you've got um, Blue Origin creating a new engine for that rocket. And then Congress is kind of debating how they're going to send funds over to the United Launch Alliance. And meanwhile, SpaceX is kind of coming in saying, oh, we can launch uh, military satellites and we're completely American-made. So I just find it funny that, you know, just the fact that an engine is made in another country, um, it just has created all of this mess here on in our country. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a complicated one. I think it, like, anytime I, I come across those stories, you can't help but feel like it's a little bit of an echo of a time mm-hmm. gone past where... It, you know, if if we're gonna go to Mars and beyond, then it's got to be an international, you know, coalition that does that. And, and sometimes you read that article about you know a, a congressperson not wanting to use something for X Y reason. It's like it's like really like can we not can we not move past that? But um yeah, well I guess that's why I'm also not um, official. that was one thing I when I was talking to a space policy expert about the journey to Mars is um it's just it's very um, closed off to our international partners because if anybody's going to be able to go to Mars, it's going to be us. Nobody's really that advanced to send stuff there like we are. Um, So in terms of collaboration, it's going to be a lot harder for our international partners to um, make cargo or make vehicles that can help with the journey to Mars. But when it comes to a moon destination, our international partners can do a lot because they're all focused on, you know, going to the moon. Um, so it is a little backwards, you know, to say that Journey to Mars is going to be this big collaborative effort when I don't feel like a lot of people can pitch in, really. Yeah, it's a, it's an interesting... You're right, we're kind of stuck in the you don't want to go back to the moon, but um, when you talk about commercial implications, too, I, I, I everything I hear is that there are so many interesting commercial implications of going to the moon or going to asteroids or things like that whereas the, the going to mars is very much just like a big symbolic i mean it would be a huge deal but it might not have as much it, it, like the moon landing originally it's more symbolic maybe than anything else so it's interesting that you know nasa may be 
seeking this impractical symbolic mission where everybody else is like, yeah, we're going to go to the moon instead because we can do that. And maybe there's interesting stuff to be learned there. Right. So it's, it, and, and there's multiple things you know, you've got moon express that wants to mine the moon, you know, they see value in the resources that are up there. And like I said earlier, I mean, there's, there's, you can do so much testing of, you know, landers of, you know, um, sustained habitats. I mean, Bigelow could eventually send its, you know, inflatable habitats up there or something, you know, yeah. there's so many different yeah. things that the moon provides as like a testing ground. And it's so close. It's like three days away, right. you know, uh, you know, if you're going fast enough. Um, so it's just, it, you know, I'm, I'm obviously of one mind about this, but I think it's, it's something to consider. Hmm. So as we all move forward into this new generation of, of, space travel and, and missions and inflatable space hotels. Um, do you, do you think that to kind of go back to the beginning that science and space reporting will push even more into the mainstream? Oh, a hundred percent. I think, and I think we're seeing that now. I mean, space, I, I, the, the excitement around it has just kind of exploded since I've started doing what I'm doing. I mean, I've been, surrounded by space all my life. Um, and I, you know, when I was a kid, it's probably harder to gauge the community interest in it, but I really didn't feel like people took that much of a, an interest in it as they do now. And now, yeah, it's just, it's just a complete 180 from what I feel like was just, you know, maybe what, five or six years ago. Um, and who knows what the catalyst catalyst of that was, but I, I do think it has to do with this kind of renaissance of of commercial spaceflight combined with you know this accessibility that that people are 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 doing now. Yeah, I think I think that's totally fair. It's um, you know, uh, I, th I think you and I are probably roughly the same age. Jason is super old. Yeah, it's thanks. crazy. Um, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I mean, I even feel that of growing up with the the space shuttle flying my my entire life you know life up until it ended like there was i didn't don't remember a time where the shuttle wasn't like shuttle equals space and and f for what it's worth you know for all the good that it brought there was a sense of um routine to it which you know has been talked about all over the place but but now it does feel like there's this new energy like that we're returning to those early days where um you know anything is possible that, you know, I or definitely my kids will see, hopefully, um, you know, humankind on another planet. And, and that sort of like sort of magical feeling in the air, I think, is um, is is sort of creeping out beyond just the, the space nerds now and that, you know, like regular people kind of know and, and hear about and see what's going on. I think I think that's good for everybody. Oh, I agree. And to add on to what I'm saying, I think another thing too is, you know, social media has made it so easy to access this information too, right? So speaking of the New Horizons mission, you know, they released a lot of that stuff on like Instagram or on Twitter, you know, and that spread like wildfire. So we have these easy platforms to to get photos and to get um, information, you know, so much faster than we ever did before. And in, in realms that people are comfortable with, like, uh, posting something to Instagram is, you know, 
I think a little less intimidating for people than, you know, finding it on a government website. So I think that has an element to it. And also, I think we're seeing a shift toward um, valuing, you know, intelligence more. Um, I don't think that's something that, well, okay, maybe I, maybe I shouldn't say that. But I, I do think it's becoming very cool to be smart and to be interested in something like science and to, you know, have a passion for space or something like that. I mean, I don't think, uh, I feel like whenever I'm talking to people now and I tell them I write about space, they're just so fascinated by it. And I think that's something that is becoming, um, it's becoming more of a thing as we keep going. Because like I said, I, I feel like it wouldn't have held that much weight maybe a couple of years ago. And for the record, I, I was like a 10-year-old when the space shuttle launched for the first time. So I think <laughs> I feel like it's the spaceship of my childhood, too. So take that, young people. <laughs> sure, <laughs> take I'll it, take it. Take that. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, Lauren Grush, it's been great to talk to you. And it's so great to read your stuff on The Verge. It's great stuff. Um, and I'm looking forward to whenever something happens, I look forward to reading your coverage of it. So thank you so much for joining us on Liftoff. It was really great to meet you. Well, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. So, Jason, I think that about does it for this fortnight. Yeah, uh, job done. We did a lot. There was a lot here. It was great to have Lauren on. Uh, it was great to to talk about stars some more. <laughs> I'm scared of black holes now. You made me scared about black holes earlier. Got to watch for them. Just keep keep an eye out. You can't yeah. see them, but keep an eye out. Keep keep watching the black hole. Keep, <laughs> keep watching the skies in case there's a black hole. Yeah. So, uh, you know, it's uh, another fortnight in the books. If you want to see uh, show notes for today's episode, you can look in your podcast app of choice, or you can check them out on our website. The URL this time is relay.fm slash liftoff slash 21. You can get in touch with us there. There's an email link in the sidebar. You can follow the show on Tumblr at liftoffpodcast.space, or you can say hi on Twitter. The show is at liftoffpodcast. You can find Jason at jsnell, and you can find me on Twitter at ismh. And until next time, Jason, say goodbye. Bye, everybody. Adios. Adios.